Welcome to The Inner Room, a study where we review highlights on daily scriptures and focus on the instructions and examples they provide to learn mastery of our emotions, to guide us in our spiritual journey, to learn to pray, worship, and listen to God's will for our lives. Hello, this is Sofia Fonseca de Niño, and I welcome you to this inner room. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the inner room, Emotions in the Bible. And we would love to hear your questions, your ideas, or your comments. Thank you for joining us today. A number of years ago, I had a very difficult interview, and I arrived at it with a small alabaster jar that contained within it pictures of an accident we had recently had, pictures of my father who had passed the month before, and my family, my four children and my husband. And knowing that the meeting was going to be difficult, I placed those pictures inside and came into the meeting holding them, understanding that I was going to need God's presence in a very real way, that I had just survived an accident, I had just buried my father, and life with my husband and children was beckoning forth. I remember putting that alabaster jar on the table with my purse and laptop and things that I was carrying, and proceeded to have a two-hour conversation that was extremely difficult. The story for today contains an alabaster jar, and it is my favorite story in the entire Bible. We have a woman arriving at a house and prostrating herself before Jesus and washing his feet with her hair and her tears and pouring very, very expensive oil on his feet and rubbing them in an anointing kind of way. I wonder what is your favorite story in the Bible and have you had a story where you have brought it to life in your own way, where you knew that something was going to have a deep emotion like I knew in this place, I was going to have full rejection and opposition, so I wanted to arrive knowing who I was, I was God's and he had given me my own alabaster jar and within it in those moments it contained miracles of having been delivered from this accident grief and love of my father and a purpose and a mission which is my husband and my family so the the gospel is something on which we stand is not something that we just say or or recite those are very powerful and in fact learning specific verses that we can use in our life in times of difficulty is one of the things that the bible inspires us to do in all of our Uh, siblings from our royal family, St. Paul, St. Peter, all of them teach us through their exhortations in their letters to do that. But I'm wondering if today you can share with somebody a story of your own standing on the Bible. And if you haven't had the chance to do that, like in this case, I did have a chance to bring it in a very real way for something that I needed very much. And I would love to hear it. Find us on Facebook, at The Inner Room, Emotions in the Bible, and 
send us a message that we can hear your story. The readings for today are going to connect to this gesture of generosity from this woman that comes into a Pharisee's house where Jesus is having dinner and has a tremendous act of humility. The first reading from Paul in 1 Corinthians also is the story of standing on the Word of God and of humility. He reminds us of his own story. So find your story and tell it because that is how the story of salvation continues to unfold in our world today. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I am reminding you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received, and in which you also stand. So, the same story of standing on the gospel is what Paul is reminding the community of Corinth. We all need reminders, don't we? The gospel saves us, and we stand on it for our life. But our minds are fickle, and it's easy to forget them. Today, I received notice of a uh, rejection for a job, uh, or actually a project for which I applied on Monday, and I had an amazing interview. And I know I will work with this team because it's, it's aligned with everything that I am and everything that I do. And still, when you get a rejection, there is a moment of stinging in your ego and in your soul because you think, oh... Everything went so well. And the email I got back saying, you know, we want you in our team. This particular project is not going to be aligned with what we want to do with you. So where do we stand when life throws things at us that are not what we want? And it's important to stand in the gospel. Paul gives us an order of importance for the gospel that he has preached. He says that in order of importance, he told us, Christ has died for us according to the scriptures. So there's a story that leads up to Jesus dying. And that's what makes the story the fulfillment of God's promise. And then he was buried and raised. And then he starts to tell us in what ways Jesus appeared. First to Cephas and the twelve. Then to five hundred brothers at once. And then to James. And then finally to him, to Paul. With this telling of first-hand witnesses to the story of salvation. He's saying, there's truth to what I'm telling you. It's a compelling story and it is happening around you. It is happening. So how do we take that feeling that is happening around you and me today? Exactly by the example of our stories for the ways in which we bring Jesus and his word into the world in the way in which that story of salvation continues to move and shape our life. Paul then, at the end of these uh, verses for today, after he has said, I am the least of the apostles, he then goes into a moment of humility because even though he has given his life to spread the gospel, he recognizes his sin. He says that he is the least because he persecuted the, ch the church of God. He didn't know any better. He was a faithful Jew and he wanted the Christian uh, sort of new gatherings that were happening to stop because he saw them as a threat to the 
Jewish faith. So he says that he's the least. So there's a humility in what he says that reminds us of what we will talk about in a moment in the story of today, where the woman humbles herself before Jesus and washes his feet. We are preparing to enter into a calendar moment with the Jewish brethren next week who begin their new calendar year. And I've been telling you about that for the last few days. There will be a day of atonement when all that are called to do that will fast from sundown to sundown. And those that I know that are doing this are not going to take any water or food for the whole day. You have to consult with your doctor, but that's what they're doing. And they're offering this day to pray for the nation in Washington, D.C. So I invite you in whatever measure you can to join that effort. If Paul, who was called directly by Jesus, is constantly reminded of his sin and looks for a way to atone, let us do the same and let us do the same for our nation because God's grace is abundant, as Paul tells us. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me has not been ineffective. Therefore, whether it will be I or they, we preach and you have believed. So let's do the same. Let us put into action the words that we hear so that we can call some to Jesus. The psalm for today is 118. As we fast and pray for the nation next week, we do it with the understanding that God's mercy endures forever, as this psalm reminds us. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Israel say his mercy endures forever. The right hand of the Lord is exalted, has struck with power, and we declare the works of the Lord. You are my God, I give thanks to you, O oh my God, I extol you. We fast knowing that God hears our prayers, but why do we fast? In the Old Testament, people fast when they're seeking deliverance from their enemies or when they're repenting from some serious transgression to show God that they're turning their hearts or as an expression of humility. And perhaps all of these are reasons to pray for our nation because in many ways we have turned our hearts away from God in fundamental ways. We, we seek deliverance, we seek repentance, we express our dependence on God. Fasting also strengthens prayers. Jesus says to the apostles in the gospel at one point when they couldn't get rid of demons that some deliverances require fasting and prayer, that if you don't fast, you cannot produce results. In a way, the bottom line is that fasting is a way to seek God's guidance and God's deliverance and to see his power moving through us because we are detaching ourselves. I think we also see grief as an expression through fasting in stories of the Bible. And it is a tool for us for self-discipline, where we deny ourselves self-indulgences. Sometimes perhaps we don't eat something that we really want, or we skip a meal, or we choose not to have something like alcohol for a period of time. I'm always amazed to see that in today's culture of well-being, we continue to hear things like, Intermittent fasting is very helpful for our bodies 
and it gives us energy and we see only the physical components and the way that it helps us burn fat, fat for example. But there is a spiritual dimension to fasting that all of our forefathers and mothers have known about. And we can use it in this moment as we prepare for the election to turn our hearts and the hearts of others to God in asking for forgiveness and repentance. Let us take a look at the gospel where a woman does this in the most beautiful of ways. I don't get tired of reading this story over the years. The story of the woman who breaks the alabaster flask of ointment at the feet of Jesus. The story is told by Luke in the chapter 7, the verses 36. And we hear a certain Pharisee, we are not told directly at the beginning who he is, but then Jesus speaks directly to him, so we know that he's Simon, and that he's hosting a meal, and he invites Jesus to eat at his house. And we know how many of the Pharisees, Paul is one of them, are persecuting Jesus because they do not understand what he's talking about and they feel he is a threat to their unity. So when Simon invites Jesus to the house and they recline that table, the gospel tells us a sinful woman in the city hears that Jesus is, is there and she bursts into this room. Can you imagine that, in, that idea of a woman just bursting, wanting to be close to Jesus, knowing that he can forgive sins, wanting repentance to such a degree that she comes into a house where she knows she will be unwelcome and where others touching her can cause this defilement and where she knows she will be unwanted and persecuted. But she stands behind Jesus at his feet weeping and then begins to bathe his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. She kisses him in, her, in his feet, anoints his feet with oil. Many say that this is sort of a prefiguring of the anointing since he will die and will not receive ointments, that this is happening a couple of times before. And the Pharisee, who is being righteous and cannot understand how Jesus is allowing this to happen, He's saying something to himself that's so beautiful, right? That Jesus is understanding the motives of our hearts. And the gospel reader gives us that hint. The, the gospel writer gives us that hint that Jesus understands what Simon is saying to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. He has invited Jesus into his house, not because he understands everything, but because he is about to be moved in a fundamental way. And that is how we invite Jesus into our homes, into our marriages, into our workplaces, into our hearts. We don't understand everything. We don't know everything. In fact, we know so tiny, so little. And all we have to do is invite him. Then he does the rest. Because Jesus speaks to him by name. And when he wants to call our attention, he calls us by name. Sophia, I have something to say to you. Replace my name for your name and say it out loud. I have something to say to you. 
because Jesus is always ready. We just don't invite him. We don't invite him. So the man is ready. He says, tell me, teacher. And Jesus says, two people were in debt to a certain creditor. One owed 500 days of wages and the other 50. And he forgives both. Who will love him more? What is Jesus interested in your heart and mine? Our love. He wants to know how deep are we willing to love? And Simon replies, the one, I suppose, whose larger debt was forgiven. And Jesus entertains our lack of knowledge. He entertains our sinfulness. He entertains the wrong motivations in our hearts. He meets us where we are. So he says, you judged rightly. He gives him the part that is right. But then he says, do you see this woman? Of course he sees that woman. When I enter your house, you didn't give me water for my feet. She's bathed them with tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss and she hasn't stopped kissing me, my feet since she entered. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. So these Pharisee hosting the meal hadn't shown any of the usual marks of hospitality that usually visitors would receive and yet Jesus has this precious moment of allowing an unwanted to touch him to open the heart of another one so he turns around and says to the woman your sins are forgiven and then at the table they are saying and grumbling still who is this who even forgives sins. The woman is in a humble place and when we are there, Jesus will lavish our hearts and our souls with his generosity and say to you and me, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Mm-hmm.